Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we explore the latest in blockchain technology and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna, and me, Frederick. This week, we dive into VDFs with Joseph Bonneau, assistant professor at NYU. We chat about what they are, how they were developed, and what they can be used for. Before we start, we want to say thank you to this week's sponsor, Trail of Bits. Trail of Bits recently released a blog post that might be interesting to our listeners who are concerned about privacy. The post is about the concept of safe browsing. Safe browsing claims to protect users by providing them with something called K-anonymity. However, recent security news has highlighted some privacy concerns. The Trail of Bits blog post outlines how the safe browsing protocol works and describes why K-anonymity is insufficient in protecting users' privacy. For more on their deep dive into this issue and to learn about their other work on privacy, security, and more, visit blog.trailofbits.com. I will be sharing the link to this post in the show notes. So thank you again, Trail of Bits. And now here's our interview with Joseph Bonneau. So today we're sitting with Joseph Bonneau, who is an assistant professor at NYU and was previously part of the Stanford Applied Crypto Group. Welcome to the show, Joseph. Thanks a lot for having me. And we also have Frederick with us. Hello, hello. <laughs> so uh, we're going to have an exciting episode talking about VDFs, which is an interesting topic that uh, is getting a lot of getting a lot of uh, attention lately, I think. And definitely, in my opinion, something that like I don't know enough about and feel like I should. So I'm really glad to have you on the show to talk to us today. Great. Well, I hope I can help. So I think... As we're kind of meeting for the first time, I'm very curious to hear, like, where did you get started on this track towards blockchain slash VDFs? Like, where would you put the beginning of your journey? Oh, uh, I guess those are two different questions because I was interested in blockchains from, wow, eight, nine years ago. That started when I was in grad school. I was a PhD student uh, at University of Cambridge over in the UK. And I guess like a lot of research groups, the Bitcoin white paper sort of crossed our desk or email list. It was emailed around. Actually, my supervisor for my PhD, Ross Anderson, he assigned, uh, he basically ordered me to read the white paper one day because we were supposed to, we had a group meeting every Friday and uh, research would always be presented. And we were supposed to have a speaker come one week and the speaker canceled. So the day before my supervisor said, okay, we need something to fill in the group meeting. So why don't you read this uh, Bitcoin paper that we've heard about so that you can tell the group what it is. And I remember thinking this shouldn't be that bad. It's only about a nine page paper. And then it took, you know, hours because once I read it, I wanted to go online and fill in some of the details. It's, it's famously a little bit vague about a lot of uh, technical points about how Bitcoin works. And then I presented at the group meeting the next day. And I said, you know, this is a simple paper, but I really think there's actually something new and interesting and tried to convince a room full of 10 or 15 other researchers that this was you know, really an interesting topic. I actually think most of the room rolled their eyes a bit and said, well, we've, we've been hearing about digital currency and e-cash for decades and nothing's ever really come of it. This is probably going to be another entrant in the graveyard eventually. Um, but I was taken, so I uh, kept working on it kind of as a sidelight to my main work. I finished my PhD. I went to Google and was working on the security team, and Bitcoin was still a hobby. So it wasn't until 2014 when I went to Princeton as a postdoc where I said part of, part of the goal of going to Princeton was to try and work on Bitcoin full-time as a researcher and oh, just wow. see is there enough here to write papers and really have an academic research career. And I guess I have to credit uh, my supervisor at Princeton, uh, Arvin Narayanan, who really said, you know, I think this is going to be a big topic that a lot of academics are going to focus on. So we should start. We should try to be the first. We should teach a class. Uh, teaching that class led to us writing a textbook. Oh, wow. What's that called? Uh, Bitcoin and Cryptocurrency Technologies, which is... Oh, cool. Uh, it's published by Princeton University Press. The, the best thing about it, I think, is that it's freely available online. At least the, the pre-professionally uh, typeset and copy edited version is. You can see basically the, the author's pre-draft online. 
So that, that's helped it spread a lot. I, we have a list online, but it's being used in dozens of different university courses now. So that's been great. I meet people all the time at conferences who said they picked up the book or they watched. There's some lectures that are on YouTube that accompany it. Um, so that cool. was one of our first big projects was just putting these materials out. We talked quite a lot to Dan Bonet about uh, education and like the the state of blockchain education. What what do you think of that? Like, is is it in a good state or does there need to be more education? Uh, where are we? Well, there's an old saying that the easiest way to start an argument at a university is to ask the question, uh, what should an educated person know? And people have really strong opinions about what's important and uh, what's not important to teach students. I mean, I've taught blockchain courses at three universities now, Princeton, Stanford, and NYU, kind of roughly the same template, following the textbook, focusing mostly on Bitcoin and Ethereum. I've seen other courses at different universities that take a totally different track. They teach Hyperledger or uh, some other system. So I think we're still in the state where it's very much unclear what it means to have a class where you learn about blockchains or cryptocurrencies, what should be taught, what are the important systems. And some people take an opinion that it's not worth teaching Bitcoin at all because they think it's not sustainable, it's not going to be around in 10 years, so it's a waste of time. I think conservatively, Bitcoin is the most sensible to teach, not just because it was uh, first, but because since it inspired most of the other systems, there's sort of pieces of Bitcoin everywhere. So while I kind of agree that Bitcoin might be gone in 10 years, maybe even less time than that. I think that we're more sure that the traces of Bitcoin will be around. And if you decide to teach another system, you know, if you wanted to teach Hyperledger or Tendermint or Algorand or whatever entrant you have, we have sort of less certainty about, you know, what's going to be long lasting and influential there. So there's pretty widespread disagreement about, you know, what are the basic fundamentals of the field that people should learn. But besides learning cryptographic primitives, which hopefully everybody teaches in their courses, we don't really know what it means to be a, you know, an educated person in the blockchain space. It's, it's kind of interesting uh, as well to think about, you know, whether you're teaching a specific protocol or like the general system, I mean, taking it to like computer science, some schools like uh, just refuse to teach programming because they think that's like a vocational school activity and you should be teaching you know math and computer science from core principles um in, in in the same way like teaching bitcoin or teaching ethereum is like teaching programming but what are the then the underlying things that you like what are the commonalities that you teach it's a tricky question i mean i think that we, you know, a similar thing in the blockchain space is some people think it's really important to teach practical skills like how to uh, spin up a Bitcoin node and sync it with the network or how to submit a transaction to the Bitcoin network, uh, really kind of low level hands on stuff. And others say, well, that's kind of all details and you really should be learning how zero knowledge proofs work or different signature schemes. So it's really it's such a big space. We haven't really at all standardize what what's important to know. So let's go back to your story. Um, you were at Princeton. What happened after that? Uh, well, uh, I came out to the Bay Area and was at Stanford for two years and was working with a Stanford crypto group um, looking for new research projects. And that was around the time, I think I'd had the idea of VDFs without, before the name existed in the, while I was at Princeton. And when I came out to Stanford talking to Dan, talking to others, I said, you know, this is always a, if we had this thing, a a VDF, protocols would really be a lot better. So I sort of described, this is usually how cryptographers start working. Um, They describe some functionality that they'd like to have. Sometimes they even describe it as uh, what's called an ideal functionality um, or sort of as an oracle first and say, if we had this magic thing, uh, we could build protocols out of it or do some other cool thing. Now we just have to realize, uh, figure out how to realize it. Um, so, you know, VDFs definitely started that way. I said, if we had this function that had these exact properties, then, you know, it would be really great. And we worked on it for, you know, the better part of two years at, at Stanford before we had a, a paper to put out there, and um, which is, you know, obviously led to a lot of follow-up work. So this, it sounds like this VDF idea was really coming from you, 
but your the paper ends up having a bunch of co-authors. How does that work? So yeah, I think you can you can trace the idea to a paper that uh, an unpublished paper just available online that uh, I wrote while I was at Princeton um, with two two co-authors with Jeremy Clark and uh, Stephen Goldfeder. And that paper was about generating a random dispute in or a lottery using the blockchain. And we were looking at the idea, which a lot of people had at the time, this was 2015, uh, of extracting randomness from blockchains, basically by just hashing the most random block in the chain and saying it's uh, fairly hard to predict what the next block is going to be. I wouldn't say that was our idea. It was happening in practice at the time. A lot of people were using this as a, a sort of quick and dirty way to get some unpredictable randomness from the blockchain. We, we wrote a paper analyzing whether or not this was secure and different attacks that could be done by miners or others to try to manipulate the randomness. And there's about two paragraphs in that paper where we say, you know, boy, if you could slow down the process of extracting randomness, if you could pass it through some function that was slow, it would make these attacks a lot more difficult. So that was kind of the, the germ of the idea uh, where we said, if we had this slow function, um, we could stick it in here and it would strengthen this protocol. You know, when I showed up at Stanford, I was talking to to Dan and others about some problems we could potentially work on. And I sort of went back to that and said, when we were writing this paper, there was kind of this gap uh, where we said, you know, if we if we had this thing, this would really be a lot better. Um, so let's sit down for a while and see if we could build that thing. Then do you, do you get other researchers to join you on it? Or are you using pieces of their work in it? Like, how does that work? It's a pretty nebulous process. It works differently with different people and different institutions, how academics form teams and write papers. There's actually been some, some meta-analysis of in lots of different fields of how collaboration networks form. But it's very informal. So, you know, I was talking about this problem to Dan. We talked about it with uh, many other students and people who are around. People always say, oh, what are you working on? And you'll sort of fill them in on ideas and progress. Some of the students, you know, heard it, didn't continue to work on it. And it turned out that uh, Ben Fish and Benedict Boons, who were both dance students, also thought this was a really interesting problem. Uh, ended up saying, yeah, we're interested. We want to work on this with you. We had a bunch of meetings. But yeah, it wasn't a more formal process than talking to them about it, you know, over lunch at the whiteboard, them getting interested, having ideas that, you know, contributed a lot to the paper. So that was how that you know, group of four people writing the paper came about. So I think we should definitely define now what a VDF is. We've talked a lot about the process of making the research, but what is a VDF? Sure. Um, so I'll add one more side note, which is that it took us a long time just to name this thing. We went through lots of different names, uh, you know, a slow function, a delay function, um, a unique proof of sequential work. We ended up settling on verifiable delay function. And I think it's turned out to be a really good name because there's three words and each one of them is really important. Basically say exactly what it is. So start with the word delay. Uh, it's a function that's designed to, to be slow to compute. And you have to make a distinction between slow to compute and difficult to compute. Slow to compute uh, really means that it it, it's slow even if you have a lot of computers at your disposal. Okay, so there are some things that are difficult, like finding a block, finding the next block in the Bitcoin blockchain, but they aren't inherently slow because if you could throw an enormous amount of computing power, you know, you would make it faster and faster. So the, the slowness, the delay, really comes from the fact that it's an inherently sequential problem, um, which means that more computers won't help you. A uh, faster computer with a higher clock speed will help a little bit, um, but just adding computers working in parallel shouldn't help make it faster. Uh, okay, so that's the delay part, this sequentiality, slowness, even with a lot of computers working in parallel. I have a slight follow-up question on the delay, which is, is the property just that it's slow, like undefinably slow, or is the delay also a specific delay? Like, is it an inherent part of a VDF to say, I want to delay by 10 seconds? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, and it is, uh, it, it should be parameterizable. So you should be able to specify about how long you want the delay to be. 
Uh, now, in practice, you know, it's very difficult to say we want the delay to be exactly 10 seconds or 10 minutes or a specific amount of time because people can always come up with a slightly faster computer with a higher clock speed that can eat into that. Uh, so usually the parameter is the number of steps of computation that you have to take and the, the wall clock time, the real world time that those take is, is going to vary depending on what your, uh, what your computer is. Uh, right. But that is very important that you can adjust the delay, you know, per different protocols might need a different length of delay. All right. So let's move on to verifiable. Sure. So <laughs> is that the next word? <laughs> yeah. So um, the verifiable part means that it's easy for somebody else to evaluate the result of this uh, slow function and check that it's correct. Often that's going to require providing an extra proof, but a verifiable delay function has the property that uh, you can efficiently prove to somebody that you've done this correctly, um, which is important in all sorts of distributed protocols because ideally you want only one person to have to compute the VDF uh, and then they can just prove that the result is correct to everybody else and they don't have to re-execute the computation. Uh, and then the third word is function. Uh, function just meaning that there's a unique answer. So for any given input, there's only one output that it can produce. Um, there's not multiple different ways to to compute. One thing you kind of mentioned in the history of how this came to be was like this idea of randomness. Where does randomness and VDFs connect? Because what you just described does not sound like random at all. <laughs> sure, yeah. Uh, it's actually the opposite. It's a deterministic function. But uh, why don't we talk about the, the lottery application or, or the extracting randomness from the blockchain because um, I think that will illustrate why it's important that this function be deterministic. Uh, go back to that basic idea of hashing the most recent block in a blockchain uh, and using that as uh, an unpredictable um, random beacon. Okay, so you know we, we could say, say the three of us wanted to do a lottery between us and pick you know one of us to be the leader of the podcast. You know, we could say the next block that's found in Bitcoin, uh, we're going to hash it and we're going to take the result mod three. And, you know, we would pre-agree, you know, if it's a zero, I win. If it's a one, you win. And if it's a, a two, Frederick wins. At first glance, that's a reasonably secure protocol. It's difficult uh, for us to influence what the next block that's found in the Bitcoin chain is going to be. Um, and it certainly would be hard for us to find one specifically that has the property that, it, you know, it's hash is uh, zero mod three. But there is an attack on this. Uh, and the attack would be, if you are a miner, you could find a block, you could check what uh, result it would give for the lottery. And if you don't like that result, you don't have to publish the block, you can just uh, withhold it forever, kind of throw it away, wait for somebody else to find a block. And the more powerful version of that, maybe you're not a miner, but maybe you're able to talk to all the miners and tell them, if you find a block that doesn't produce the lottery uh, outcome that I want, I'll pay you more than you'll earn from publishing the block if you don't publish it. And if you're really sophisticated, you could set up a smart contract on Ethereum that would uh, reward the Bitcoin miners. So there's been some interesting work about ways you could do this bribery. Um, but that's the idea is that, you know, miners have the ability to not publish blocks that they find. And that's one way to try and manipulate uh, what the next block will be and get a favorable lottery outcome. Uh, so obviously this is fairly expensive. Uh, Bitcoin blocks generate a lot of revenue each block. So you know if you're going to provide a bribe that's worth more than the block reward, it's going to get uh, costly, but it's it's possible. If this lottery had millions of dollars uh, riding on it, it would be you know worth your while possibly to to try to bribe miners in the network to to withhold and to try to bias the outcome. Uh, so here's where the delay part comes in. Let's say that we say the result of the lottery is going to be the hash of the next block in the chain, then run through a delay function that we believe will take a half an hour to compute. Okay, then it's not really possible to bribe miners to withhold a block that doesn't produce the outcome that we want, because they'd have to find the block, compute this function that takes a half an hour, and then they'll know what the result would be and we decide whether or not to bribe them. Uh, gotcha. But of course, after a half hour has passed, probably another block will have been found and published anyway. And at that point, it's too late for them you know, to decide to publish or not based on the outcome. 
So this is what you mean. It's this sort of makes sense. So like the work was more on like randomness and then you realized that there would be this technique that could potentially make randomness more secure and, and like prevent this attack or this, this lottery. Is it called like a lottery attack? What would you call that? Uh, I would probably call it a withholding attack. So it would prevent the withholding attack. Yeah, or at least make it much, much more difficult. Um, so this is, yeah, exactly where it came from. We were reasoning about this attack and we said, um, if there was a way to make evaluating uh, the, the, what we call the extraction function that generates the lottery result um, from the block, if, we, if there was a way for, uh, for us to make that slow, then it would prevent miners from being able to make a decision about whether or not to withhold until it was too late. Uh, so we, we started very much with that problem. We just want to make randomness extraction from a block slow. And then we kind of isolated it into this specific cryptographic primitive that is a VDF. And we, that's where we said, well, it has to have a delay, right, for this whole thing to make sense. We want it to be verifiable so that uh, all of us, the participants in the lottery, can quickly check the result is fair. We don't have to do the delay function ourselves. Um, and here's where... Hopefully you can see why it has to be a function. Uh, it has to be deterministic so that um, there's only one possible winner of the lottery, right? If there's more than one way to evaluate the VDF, then the same block, you know, it could be evaluated different ways, which would lead to different lottery results. And that would be another avenue for potential manipulation. The example you just gave, the lottery example, this is like where the idea came from, but VDFs sound like they're a lot more general. Like, I feel like you could use this for all sorts of things. And I'm surprised that this, did this not exist before? Like, was there nothing like this in cryptography? Uh, yeah, it's, it's a really good question. I, I mean, that's always the hope is that you can, you find, you find a primitive, a crypto, cryptographic primitive while trying to solve one problem. And it ends up being useful for other people's problems as well, which, which has happened for the VDF. Um, there have been some other things, some historical antecedents uh, that are quite similar. In our paper, we actually talk about how if you take any of the three properties away, V, D, or F, that that was another thing that already existed that people had worked on before. So there's a DF and a VD yeah. and a VF, but not the three? So they're, uh, exactly, <laughs> they're not called that. Um, the, uh, the VD, the verifiable plus delay, is called a proof of sequential work. Okay. Just as one example, and I believe that was first published uh, 2011 or 12. So yeah, that was a, an object that had been studied, and that has some applications, but you know, not the the determinism part. If you take away the you know delay, if it's just a verifiable difficult function, that's basically proof of work, right? Which is used in Bitcoin and all sorts of other places, and just a delay function that's not verifiable. That, well, uh, I mean, we proposed that in the 2015 paper because that was, we didn't know how to do the verifiable part, but that's also very easy to build. You could just take a hash function, take SHA-256, you know, a well-known one in the blockchain space. And if you just compose it, so you say compute SHA-256 a million times in a row on the same input, you know, that gives you a delay function. We just don't have any trick to verify that it was computed correctly. So let's try to dig into how they actually work, because when I first heard about it, uh, like a year ago or something, it just, it didn't register with me. Like, how would I write a function like this? And it kind of felt like magic. Like, how can I write something that is sequential that will take a really long time to evaluate, but I can verify that the computation is correct? You know, it, the two didn't add up for me. But then, you know, I think your analogy to, to proof of work is really good because it is essentially like proof of work, but instead of having a massively parallelized workload, it's a sequential workload. But I still don't really know like how you actually write this one. Yeah, so I should say, you know, you sh <laughs> should, shouldn't feel bad that it's not obvious how to write it. We had multiple academic cryptographers, you know, not, not working full time, but spending a fair amount of time thinking about this for over a year uh, before we really came up with anything that worked. And in fact, as soon as we published uh, our VDF paper, two other researchers, you know, solved the problem in a different way that oh, in, in many ways has some advantages over our approach. 
So it's, it's highly non-obvious how to solve this problem. Although I think that's true for most of the great primitives in crypto history. You know, the first time you hear about public key encryption or signatures, they sound like they should be not possible. I think that's a lot of people's experience taking a crypto course. The first time they see how a signature scheme works or public key encryption, there's kind of a feeling of, wow, I, I might not have thought of that, you know, in a long time of thinking about it. But once you see it, 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 it kind of makes sense. So yeah. there are generic ways to do this using any proof system that provides succinct proofs. You know, you may be familiar with some succinct proving systems like, you know, SNARKs that show up in a lot of different places in the, the blockchain space. And generically, uh, we know how to provide a succinct proof for any long-running computation. Okay, so this is used for a lot of different uh, applications around the cryptocurrency space. So you can build a VDF that way by taking a delay function, uh, which, like I said, could be as simple as iterating a hash function many times in a row. Uh, and then you could take any system that provides succinct proofs uh, and just provide a proof that this long chain of hash functions was evaluated correctly. So like running Blake to a thousand times inside a snark would be a VDF. That would be a VDF, yeah. That should at least, you know, give you a hint that this is possible. It uh, turns out not to be a very efficient VDF for a couple reasons. You know, for it to provide an adequate delay, a thousand iterations of Blake is probably too few. You'd probably want at least on the order of billions because uh, a computer can, you know, a fast uh, ASIC can certainly compute those in, you know, in seconds. So when you start thinking about how big the circuit's going to be to prove that you've correctly done a billion iterations of Blake, uh, using a snark, the numbers get uh, really, really massive. It would take a very, very long time to compute that proof. Everything would work. It would actually still be a succinct proof that was fast to verify, uh, but the proving time would be really, really large. Can I ask? Can I ask something? This is totally like a one hundred and one question, and it might just be that my brain isn't working. But when you use the word succinct, I don't always understand what that means. Like it's used all the time, but what what is succinct? Uh, yeah, so there's, there's kind of a technical definition, you know, the high level definition succinct just means uh, short. So we do some really big computation and provide a very short proof that it's correct. There's a technical definition in crypto of how short it has to be uh, to be, you know, succinct. But it probably suffices here to just say it means that there's a short proof of correctness. Okay. And the size of the proof grows only extremely slowly relative to the size of the computation. So, you know, you could basically think of doing any computation imaginably and the proof would still be very, very small. Cool. Right. So, so you might ask, given the fact that, you know, I just told you that the generic construction for trying to build a VDF ends up having a very long proving time, you know, what can you do about this? So in our 2018 paper, uh, we described a lot of uh, tricks and ways to make this generic VDF idea more efficient. Uh, and those included, you know, breaking up the chain of iterated uh, hash functions into pieces and computing the proof separately um, so that you can use some parallelism on them as the prover. Uh, they included using a very special function, so not Blake, but a much more efficient one-way function that does well within a proving system. But the most competitive VDFs that we've seen uh, were published very quickly uh, after our paper came out by uh, two different researchers who were independently interested in the same problem. And both of them use the same, they use the same algebraic option, which is squaring uh, in a group of unknown order. Who were those researchers? Right. So I guess I, I wanted to provide a, a URL, vdfresearch.org which is a very nice page that uh, has a list of all the important papers that have been written on VDFs. Oh, nice. And it gets a little confusing because they have very similar names. So uh, the paper that we published in 2018, and by we, that was myself, Dan Bonet, Benedict Boons, and Ben Fish, is just called Verifiable Delay Functions. And you'll note on the website that we published on June 12th. On June 20th, there was a paper by Ben Wesolowski, called Efficient Verifiable Delay Functions. And on June 22nd, so this all happened within 10 days, there was a paper by Christoph P. 
Pijazak, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but it's a difficult one, uh, called Simple Verifiable Delay Functions. And then since then, there have been papers called Continuous Verifiable Delay Functions and Tight Verifiable Delay Functions. But just to talk about the two papers that followed up on ours very closely, the efficient and the simple, usually they're actually just these the constructions in those papers have sort of been named after the authors now. So there's uh, the Wesolowski construction and the Peterzak construction. But both of them are based on the same uh, idea for building a delay function. Uh, we'll get to the verifiable part in just a second. But that's to take uh, the operation of repeated squaring in a group of unknown order. And so what does that mean? What is a group of unknown order? It turns out it should be very familiar to people who have a crypto background. Any uh, group that is used in RSA cryptography, so just a large uh, composite number, product of two large primes, provides a group of unknown order. So this has been the basis of RSA cryptography, um, signing and encryption for a long time. And I should say RSA cryptography, even though it was, you know, it's very old, it's been used widely on the internet and lots of other places. Um, the RSA construction is, has not traditionally been used in uh, blockchains, right? Bitcoin uses ECDSA, not RSA signatures. So RSA, maybe for people who got into cryptography in the blockchain age, not something that they're uh, familiar with. I think, am I wrong here or does uh, RSA basically require a trusted setup? Yeah, so... It does require a trusted setup to generate this number that's the product of uh, two large primes, nobody knowing the two primes, the factorization. Uh, but we should circle back to that because there's a way to use these constructions without the trusted setup. So cool. sort of put a pin in that. Imagine that we have this uh, large number n, which is the product of two large primes, and nobody knows the primes. The basic step that's used to build a delay function um, in both the, the Wesolowski, the Peterzak construction, you take a number mod n and you square it. And then you square it again. And every squaring is one step in your VDF. So it's a very, very uh, simple function. You just take a number, you square it, you reduce mod n, and then you square it again. And you do as many squarings as you think you need to induce the delay that you want. So if you want a delay on the order of seconds, maybe you compute a billion squarings. If you want a delay on the order of minutes, you know, you might need a trillion squarings or more. That provides a delay function uh, without knowing the order of the group. We don't know a more efficient way to compute, say, a trillion squarings in a row. Um, and you can also express, you know, a trillion squarings in a row as saying, you know, take your input uh, and raise it to the power two to the 40 or whatever your, uh, whatever your choice is for your delay parameter. And I could say here, as a historical note, um, that this idea of squaring mod n and using it uh, as a delay or a function that's uh, sequential, that uh, is an old idea dating at least to the 1990s. Um, so there was a proposal in the 1990s called time lock encryption. Uh, and the idea was that you would encrypt some data with the property that you wanted people to be able to read it in the future, but not now. So you want anybody to be able to read it in the future, but it to be a secret for now. And the way that time lock encryption was, uh, was built, the construction that was provided was also based on squaring mod n. Uh, so you basically provided a number and you said, if you square this number a trillion times, maybe more than a trillion times, then the result you get will be a key that is used to decrypt the data. Um, and again, that had a trusted setup to to build. So, you know, very different than the VDF setting, but using the same basic idea of squaring uh, mod n, squaring in a group of unknown order as, uh, as a slow function. Uh, okay, so that idea was old. You know, our group at Stanford was also well aware that this was a good candidate for building a delay function. The part that uh, we didn't know how to do, and nobody knew how to do, publicly at least, that we know about until June of 2018 was to make that verifiable. Okay, so how can I take a number, square it a trillion times mod n, and prove to you that I did every one of those squarings correctly? It's very interesting because we now know two different ways to do this proof that work very differently under the hood and have different properties. And they were proposed, at least officially, within two days of each other by two different researchers 
Um, and you know, since then, a lot more people have looked at the problem. And we have some tricks around those two constructions, but that's basically it. We know two ways to do it and you know, essentially no other ways to do it. Um, so it was a very, very exciting time, June of 2018, where we you know, learned so much about VDFs in a short period of time. I'm super curious to hear more about how these proofs actually work or like what proofs they are, even if it's just like, where do I find more info on it? Um, so, so what are these proofs and, and maybe how do they differ from Okay, sure. Um, so I should preface by saying, uh, that both are, um, they're somewhat complicated to get your head around. I had to stare at both papers for quite a few hours to feel like I really understood what was going on. Um, even though both can be described in only a couple of uh, pages. Maybe I'll start with the, the Peterzak proof. It has, so I should say, both of these proofs are very ad hoc. They exploit specific algebraic properties of working in a group of unknown order. Uh, so they're quite different from generic zero-knowledge proof techniques like SNARKs that you, you know, may have seen that work for any statement. This is a very specific proof that is designed, you know, only to prove that a number was squared a certain number of times mod n. So the basic idea behind the Peterzak proof is you take the midpoint of the computation. So, you know, you're taking uh, an input x and you're squaring it a trillion times mod n. Um, there's some value, call it y, that is x to the half a trillion or x squared half a trillion times. And if you take that number and square it half a trillion times, you get to the output. So the Peterzak proof exploits this algebraic structure that there's a similar relationship between x and the midpoint and between the midpoint and the output. Um, and that you can actually verify that both of those two pairs of numbers, x and the midpoint and the midpoint uh, and y, have this same relationship. And this could be checked efficiently using only half a trillion squarings. Okay, so the prover actually provides a few numbers that would let the verifier check that both numbers have the same relationship, only doing half a trillion squarings instead of doing all trillion squarings themselves. Uh, so that's the basic idea is that you can reduce the amount of work to verify by half. Uh, but then the beautiful part that gets you to a nice efficient proof is that you can actually recursively do this. So once the verifier has to check that this uh, pair of numbers each has this half a trillion squarings relationship, you can do the same proof technique again to get it down to a quarter of a trillion squarings. And eventually you get it down to just uh, one squaring that you have to do. And it, it only requires a logarithmic amount of work uh, by the prover to keep uh, basically dividing the amount of work that the verifier has to do in half. That makes sense. And so the size of that proof uh, ends up being logarithmic. So if you're verifying... Uh, 2 to the 40 squarings, you need to send on the order of uh, 40 things to the verifier. So it's it's uh, fairly short, but it, it grows, you know, slowly with the, the, the difficulty of the VDF that you're verifying. Uh, if I can change gears and talk about the Wesolowski proof, uh, which is quite different, it's very, very elegant when you see it written out um, because the prover only has to provide, I believe, two things to the verifier. So... The basic idea of the Wesolowski proof, it's easier to think of in terms of an interactive proof uh, where the verifier is actually asking random questions uh, of the prover. Uh, I'll imagine that you're the prover, so you claim that some value y is equal to x squared a trillion times mod m. Uh, and I say, okay, well, you know, if that's really true, I want you to provide x to the trillion or x squared a trillion minus some random number squarings, and then I'll do the rest of the computation myself. So the, the basic idea is I query you on a random point in this chain uh, of values that you get by repeatedly squaring. So you don't know in advance which value I'm going to ask for, which means you have to have stored all of these values. Uh, but then I can sort of quickly check that this value gets uh, to the endpoint. And that's why it's a very, very short proof. You basically just have to provide this one thing. So cryptographers know a generic way to, to make any interactive proof non-interactive. Um, it's called the Fiat-Shamir transform or sometimes the Fiat-Shamir heuristic. 
And the way it works is the prover simulates uh, having this verifier by taking their answer, uh, hashing it, and using that result to choose you know, a, a, a random query that they then have to answer. Um, and that's nice because then it provides a proof that you can just publish uh, and anybody can, can verify. So the advantage of the Wesolowski proof construction uh, is that the proof is much shorter and the proof is actually a constant size no matter how difficult the VDF was. Um, so no matter how many squarings you've done, it's always the same amount uh, of information that you have to provide to prove it. Uh, the downside is that if you do it uh, simply, it requires you to not only square, uh, say, a trillion times, but actually to remember every intermediate result in the computation so that no matter which one you're asked for, uh, you're able to provide it to the verifier. In, uh, in practice, there have been uh, a lot of improvements made to this since the original publication, and you know the, the published paper by Wesolowski has most of these improvements. So you don't have to, have to actually have memory equal to the number of steps in the computation. Cool. So, yeah, I mean, there there's all these VDF competitions around as well that um, uh, both, you know, you know, try to find better research, but I guess mostly find efficient implementations and something I want to switch to in a little bit as well. But I, I think there's also a competition for providing an efficient VDF in a class group instead of a group of unknown order. Uh, what's the difference ah, there? Uh, great. So um, a class group actually is a group of unknown order. Uh, it's just a different construction. So the downside um, of working in you know what we call an RSA group is that it relies on a trusted setup. Somebody is supposed to choose two large random primes, multiply them together, publish the results, and then throw away the primes so that nobody knows the factorization of n. And the VDF... Uh, falls apart and becomes very quick to compute if you know the factorization of n, if you know the order of the group. And the technical reason for that is that you can uh, take this large exponent, like 2 to the 40, uh, and just reduce it modulo the order of the group and then do a much shorter exponentiation. So uh, it's much simpler to describe. It's much more intuitive for people to think about squaring mod n. But algebraically, the important thing is that you're squaring within a group of unknown order. The Interesting thing is that we know this one other construction of a group of unknown order, which is called a class group, that can be created with no trusted setup. So the trusted setup problem uh, goes away. Now, the algebra gets a little bit more complicated. It's certainly less intuitive and familiar to people. Um, but we know how to do it. Uh, we know that the, the math works out. And I guess the, the downside is that the implementation of operations in a class group are really slow currently. So I guess though that's what the competitions are about, to speed those up? Uh, yeah, so it's interesting. It's not a problem per se that operations in a class group are slow because the whole point of a VDF is to be slow. So the, the slowness isn't the issue. Uh, the issue is that we don't know how much faster they can be made to be with an optimized implementation. RSA cryptography has been around for a very long time. People have thought a lot about how to square mod n efficiently. There's been a lot of work on efficient implementations, especially in hardware. So we have more confidence that we can reason about how quick this can be made to be. Uh, whereas for class groups, they haven't really been used in practice for anything, as far as I know. Um, the implementations are all sort of research quality code. There hasn't been an industrial implementation or a hardware implementation. Uh, so we don't know how much faster a well-resourced attacker uh, could make class group arithmetic. And this is uh, interesting because when you use VDFs in practice, the interesting security question is always, how fast can my attacker compute this function? And you want to reason about um, some speed that you don't think it's practical for an attacker to go faster than. And the better you're able to estimate that, the more secure the VDF is in a sense, because you have more confidence that if you think that this function can't be computed in less than 10 minutes, and an attacker shows up and can compute it in one minute because they have some algebraic speed up for the arithmetic that you didn't think about, that might really change you know, the security properties of whatever protocol you're using the VDF for. Yeah. 
I, I th think this is a problem or like a, a thing that I hear a lot and a lot of confusion about uh, with VDFs is say that VDFs existed when Bitcoin was first built and deployed and they included a VDF that should take 10 minutes. And now, 10 years later, CPUs are so much better, maybe even implementations and code is so much better. This thing now just takes one minute to compute or whatever. Like, what's the impact of time, you know, long time years on how long a VDF actually takes? Do, like, should blockchains be worried about this and redeploy or reconfigure their VDFs with regular intervals? Or, you know, what does it take to actually use one in practice? Uh, yeah, so... VDFs, there's this parameter of the number of steps, the number of squarings, for example, uh, that you take. So you can always make that larger to keep up with Moore's Law and to keep up with better technology, making faster processors. So that part's fairly easy. If computers get twice as fast, you require the VDF to take twice as many steps. Um, you know, the, the difficult part is, what if your adversary has a better computer than you do or a better implementation, they have some algebraic tricks to speed up the computation that you don't know about that allows them to compute 10 times faster than you. And that's why I think the perception is that uh, an RSA-based VDF is more, it's certainly easier to reason about and is a more conservative uh, choice right now because we have more confidence that there aren't big speedups to be found algebraically in, in squaring mod n. And that's also where the contest comes in. Uh, people who are interested in using VDFs and avoiding the trusted setup for an RSA group and so therefore using class groups, they hope that by having these contests to encourage people to come up with optimized implementations, we'll get a better understanding of how fast you can make this go. Yeah, makes sense. So uh, I wanted to add about the trusted setup requirement for an RSA-based uh, VDF. There is another way to potentially get around this besides using class groups, um, which is to use secure multi-party computation to choose, uh, to choose N, to choose the, uh, the modulus of the group. So secure multi-party computation uh, allows a group of people to compute a function, and as long as one of them is honest, they don't all collude with each other, um, you could compute that number n and nobody would know the prime factors. This generic technique was already used for Zcash, for example, uh, to do the trusted setup for the SNARK system that they were using, which was done in a ceremony with many participants um, with the hope that they would all have to be compromised for the trusted setup to be uh, undermined. So there has been uh, some work. This is something that's never been done in practice before. Uh, choosing an RSA modulus via uh, secure multi-party computation. Um, but there are a group of researchers working on this who think that it's uh, within reach. It's something that we could do, you know, in the next year. Uh, and that would be a way to avoid the trusted setup, but work in the slightly more well-known uh, RSA groups. Cool. It also just uh, struck me that um, speaking about all these contests and speeding things up and the time lock puzzle thing that you mentioned earlier i believe i read somewhere there that, that it was some university someone put out one of these time lock puzzles that were supposed to take like 40 years to unlock and uh some group of people who were designing asics for for vdfs figured out a way to unlock it in like the next six months or something yeah i believe it was mit uh who did this and that's where the original research on uh, time lock encryption happened in general, I would say it's much more difficult to reason about an adversary's computing ability over a span of decades. Fortunately, for most of the applications of VDFs, you really only need to reason about it on the span of minutes or hours, uh, where we yeah. have hopefully a much better idea of what, uh, you know, what an attacker is able to do. There is always, in any VDF system, it's an unknown question how quickly an attacker is able to compute the function. All we can really do is estimate. Uh, and hopefully we can say an attacker is not able to compute it in less than a minute or less than 10 minutes, even if it takes uh, an honest party, say, an hour. If that's the best-known implementation we know of, we hope that uh, an attacker doesn't have some uh, much, much fancier hardware that lets them go in you know, under a minute yeah, or whatever yeah. parameter we need. But figuring out that gap, the gap between 
the adversary's computing speed and the honest party's computing speed? That's kind of the big unknown question with VDFs. It's much more of an art than a science right now, uh, reasoning about this nebulous, potentially really well-funded attacker that can do things like use exotic semiconductors, uh, right? Not just a silicon semiconductor, but these fancy, really expensive ones that need to be super cooled and can run at really fast clock speeds. Um, it's an area that certainly cryptographers haven't really worried about very much before. In most areas of cryptography, we worried about uh, a well-funded parallel attacker who might use a million computers to try to compute discrete logs or crack an AES key or something like that. Uh, for VDFs, we have to worry about, you know, an attacker who's constructing one computer that's designed to run at a really, really high clock speed to speed up the VDF. And it's just sort of an exotic attacker model that the community hasn't really had to deal with before. So in, in some ways, we're sort of lacking expertise. And even in some cases, the sort of language and definitions to reason about uh, such an attacker. I want to, I actually want to definitely spend some time talking about the ways that VDFs are actually being used, because so far we've focused a lot on the definitions and some of the challenges, but like, you know, we started back at that example, the lottery example, that one was very clear. That's kind of where this idea came from, but like, what, what is it being used for now? Because you hear the, you kind of hear talk of VDFs in all these different contexts. So where, where are the big groups you see it being used right now? So the simplest answer to where VDFs are being used right now is nowhere. Uh, as far <laughs> as I know, as far as I know, there isn't today, you know, October 2019, there isn't a practical protocol that is using VDFs in kind of the modern sense on a, on a deployed basis. I think there's a lot of people who uh, speculate to use or like have have to some degree said that they will use VDFs. I mean, Ethereum 2 is one example. Chia wants to use them in some way. Uh, I have an interesting case that we we're toying with as well on how to use them. Yeah, so they're, uh, they're, they're showing up in a lot of people's white papers. They're in a lot of designs. But as far as I know, they're not deployed anywhere. One reason for that is that you really want a hardware implementation available for the honest uh, users of the system before you deploy. Because if you assume that the adversary can build hardware to compute the VDF, but you don't have hardware yourself, then the gap between your computation speed and the adversaries uh, is going to be really, really big. So that's why for Ethereum in particular, also I believe protocol labs have been interested in uh, funding a consortium to actually build some VDF hardware so that it can be used with more confidence knowing that you know there's hardware available to honest parties to, to evaluate this thing. Mm. But that was just kind of my general disclaimer that uh, as far as I know, people aren't using them in practice yet. But they are showing up in lots and lots of, uh, there are lots of use cases where people are planning to use them. Okay, with the caveat that it's explorative, kind of speculative, there are a lot of other interesting uh, use cases. So we talked about uh, using a VDF to generate a random beacon or to run a lottery using, uh, using a blockchain uh, and to prevent attacks where blocks are withheld uh, or other manipulation is attempted. This also comes up a lot in uh, proof-of-stake protocols and other similar things, which really are running a lottery under the hood. So in a lot of proof-of-stake protocols, there's a sort of built-in lottery that randomly selects from among a group of validators to find blocks or be on a committee or otherwise have a specific role in a protocol. So that's kind of an immediate uh, jump to say uh, we can use VDFs to strengthen sort of internal lotteries that select protocol participants to have a certain role. There's also lotteries not using blockchains at all. So there's a famous very old idea, over a century old, to generate a lottery result based on asset prices, based on stock prices. So the idea is basically that we want to run a lottery. Uh, what we'll do is we'll take all of the closing stock prices and then, you know, say the New York Stock Exchange or maybe some selection of large cap stocks. It's very difficult to predict what all those stock prices will be tomorrow. So we can take all those stock prices, hash them, and use that as the lottery result. 
there's some very interesting history. This was done in many different cities in America by organized crime who were running local lotteries. I learned a lot about the history of this actually after getting into VDFs, but state lotteries mostly were created in the 1950s and later. So prior to that, people have always liked to gamble and lotteries were mostly run by organized crime in different cities. Of course, they had the problem of convincing uh, all of the players that they were actually picking the winners randomly. So what they did is they would usually pick a couple of stocks and they would use the last digit of the stock price in the paper the next day as the, the numbers that would win the lottery. So you can uh, read all about this. It was usually called the numbers game or the numbers racket. And it was a very clever way for an illegal lottery that didn't have the force of law to verify that it was being done correctly to convince everyday users on the street that something random was actually happening. Um, but you can think about using this idea in maybe a more modern setting to, to convince people that you're generating a random number. And you could think about using a hash function, taking more stocks and hashing the, the stock prices. And then you can say, what, what's the attack? If you wanted to manipulate this, if you were a stock trader, how would you do it? It's conceptually very similar to manipulating the, the blockchain-based lottery. You would wait until the very end of the trading window, 4.59 p.m., you would look at what the lottery outcome is about to be if there's no further movement in any stock prices. And then you could say, maybe I could execute one more trade and I could push the price of various stocks up or down by a penny or two, and that would generate a totally different lottery outcome. And if you happen to be some high-frequency trader with the ability to make the last trade of the day, uh, you would then have a lot of options uh, for what the lottery outcome would be. But basically the same defense using a VDF would work here. If you take all of the stock prices, hash them, run the result through a VDF that takes an hour, then that trader sitting there at the end of the day wouldn't be able to evaluate what different manipulations of stock prices would actually do, right? By the time you've computed the results of any manipulation, it would be far too late to make a, make a trade and actually manipulate the thing. So I think it's, it's very interesting that this totally different source of randomness, uh, you know, from the real world, not blockchains, but stock markets, you could also protect using the same uh, idea, just run the thing through a VDF. In a way, though, like going back to the sort of use case question, what it sounds like is if you need real randomness that couldn't, you really want to make sure that it couldn't be affected, then a VDF could come in handy as sort of like another technique in order to promote that or to provide that. Yeah. It's, actually, we have a whole episode just on randomness with Justin Drake that we can link to. But for this episode, maybe we should just say quickly, like, where in the sort of constructions do we see randomness being necessary? Because I imagine in those places, VDFs will also be useful, but in the blockchain context. We mentioned POS, but I feel like there's other stuff too. Yeah. So, I mean, proof of work kind of elegantly gets the randomness uh, from everybody randomly searching for a solution. You know, proof of work doesn't explicitly need randomness in the same way. Even in some uh, non-proof of stake, some more static Byzantine uh, consensus protocols, there are things like random elections of a leader. Again, um, those can be, you can use uh, VDFs to make that random selection much more difficult to manipulate. There's obviously many uses of randomness in applications so not on the blockchain like not on layer one or whatever you want to call it uh, but in the application itself so like one uh, use case that we have is you want to hold a candle auction so that this is another super old concept where there used to be auctions and you wanted to prevent price sniping and um, you would light a candle and by the time the candle had burnt out that's when the auction ended and so that's how the auctioneers got randomness and um you want to do if you want to do the same in an online context or like on a blockchain then what is your candle what well, it can be a vdf oh that's such a nice metaphor <laughs> i like that yeah that's really interesting it's not totally clear to me that the vdf applies directly to this example because we think about vdfs usually as having a deterministic number of steps yeah, but you could, uh, so if you run your auction, you run your auction for, let's say, 20 blocks. 
then you start your VDF and the VDF, it gives you a number between one and five. And that's how many blocks from the end your auction ends. I see. Yeah, that that's really interesting. I hadn't thought of that application before, but that makes a lot of sense. If you want uh, some basically random result, you know, how much extra time to add and you want the you want it not to be available until uh, a point in the future. Yeah, that that's quite elegant. I was going to say, for the record, I didn't think of it. The uh, Web3 Foundation researchers did. <laughs> ah, okay. I could also add that there are some applications of EDFs that don't have to do with randomness. So one that I've heard more and more about recently in the last year uh, is using VDFs to prevent front running. So the problem with front running usually is that uh, I see you trying to place some order and then I try to quickly generate another uh, order and broadcast it on the network ahead of you. And there's the idea if you require every order to be broadcast along with a VDF designed to take five or ten minutes then you can prevent or make front running much more difficult because when I see the order that you're trying to make, I can't quickly produce another order with a VDF that took five minutes to, to rush onto the network ahead of you, right? By the time I see your order, decide the order I'd like to replace it with, the VDF will take so long that I'm not able to get my order in ahead of you. So I think this is a really interesting idea. There is an important caveat to it. Uh, to doing this securely, um, which is that the attacker can try and pre-compute VDFs for different types of orders and then decide which one to broadcast. Uh, So, for example, you know, if you're just going to broadcast something very simple like buy or sell, and uh, I know that I will either broadcast my own own order that says buy or sell based on what you did, then I can just beforehand compute the VDF on buy and on sell, right? I can do two of them in parallel, and then I can have both orders ready to go. And based on whatever you broadcast, I can still try to front run you. Um, So this anti-front running idea, it sort of requires something so unpredictable that I can't pre-compute all, you know, plausible values. I can't pre-compute the VDF result for them. But aside from that caveat, it's a very, very interesting idea Uh, to use VDFs to prevent front-running by essentially sort of proving that whatever order you're broadcasting, you would had in mind for some period of time right before broadcasting it. Mm. There's another idea, which is to use VDFs for timestamping. So, for example, say I had a secret idea and I wanted to prove that I had the idea a year ago. I just didn't tell anybody about it. I could broadcast the idea today along with a VDF that was computed on some hash of the idea, say a hash of a PDF describing the idea. And if the VDF uh, delay parameter was chosen so long that you were convinced it would take a year to compute, then I could publish the idea along with the VDF proof, and that would be sort of a non-interactive proof that I had this idea a year ago. This conceptually is a really interesting idea because you can do time stamping in a purely computational way without relying on any trusted third parties or any time stamping service. I don't think it's the most convincing real world application of a VDF. Uh, and the reason is that your uncertainty about computation speed becomes really important, right? If I actually computed it uh, three months ago, that would have very different implications than a year ago. Um, So maybe like a factor of two or four speed up that I have that you don't know about really changes the properties of the system. Whereas in most of the other cases we've talked about in the randomness case, we can build some safety margin into the protocol and say, well, you know, even if the attacker can go twice as fast, it still won't be fast enough to actually manipulate the blockchain. So that's okay. Uh, But for the timestamping application, You have to nail it, basically. You have to know exactly how fast the fastest uh, implementations can go and know faster, or else you really don't have that much confidence about, you know, the exact age of something. And it also might not be the most compelling application because we do have other ways to timestamp things, right? Uh, You can publish a commitment to them on the blockchain and just not tell anybody about it. It's a little bit less elegant and pure than this, you know, computational timestamping idea with VDFs, but, you know, it's, it's possible. We know how to do it. Mm. 
Well, you never know too. Like I think even exploring these use cases, these, even if they don't seem pragmatic right now, there could be some application where it is. I yeah. I, that seems to happen. Yeah. I, I think there, are, we still don't know. I think there will be a lot of other applications of VDFs. I hope so. Cause they're uh, kind of an interesting and fun thing to think about. Um, and it's certainly been the case historically with cryptography that people came up with hash functions, say a long time before people said, well, they can be used for proof of work and they can be used for authenticated data structures. And that means blockchains and cryptocurrency and everything else. I hope VDFs will be around for a long time and people will come up with a lot of use cases for them that we haven't thought of yet. Cool. Thank you so much for coming on to the show and talking about VDFs. It's been super interesting. I, um, I think it's been really enlightening to actually dig in and, and explain how these things work. Uh, so thank you very much. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This was a, this was a lot of fun. Um, what, where should people go if they want to find out more? I think that the best one-stop uh, site to go to is vdfresearch.org, and there's links to uh, the most important papers in the space and also a lot of talks. So um, you can see some talks that actually go through the algebra, explain how the constructions work, explain how some of the protocols work with fun animations, and that's a, a, a great way to, to get a better feel for it. Well, listen, thanks so much for coming um, and, and sharing all this. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.